Once again, good morning. Uh, we are glad that you are here this morning. Of course, uh, during the summer, we seem to be in a, a constant state of uh, uh, being remnants and a lot of people on the road and a lot of great things happening. In fact, I know a large number of our students are up in Huntsville area uh, and what we call a round trip road trip. They go up to visit and try to connect with some of the new students we know are coming our way. And uh, so a bunch of them are up there for that. And uh, uh, so whether you're in town or out of town visiting with us, we're really glad you're here. Thank you. Um, before I launch in, I want to start with a little caveat. This is not in my notes. It's just something I uh, was thinking about this morning. Um, it seems to me that when we get to this moment, a preacher preaching, we spend a lot of time trying to convince each other about what we already believe. And, um, and I'm all, you know, I understand the, the idea of being reminded. I, I forget easy, and, and I understand that. But I also think it's, in America, that's part of the problem of the church. I think when you have an eye toward the world, you know, uh, the substantial questions they have, the, the, the skepticism, the, the cynicism, the, the disbelief, and we're processing all of that with what we hear, uh, it makes a world of difference in how we hear. And so, for what that's worth, let's launch. Um, there is this man who's telling his friend that uh, the night before, he and his wife had a very serious argument. And Buddy said, um, it ended with her crawling on her hands and knees to me. And at that, the friend said, well, what did she say? And the husband replied, well, she said, come out from under that bed, you coward. <laughs> James would like to suggest today that the best way to resolve our problems is on our knees. And nowhere is that more accentuated than where we're going to enter into as we're now approaching the end of this long series on James. This is, I think, the 16th lesson uh, that we've worked, looked at. Now, you remember how James starts this letter. Well, you have that kind of memory. Uh, so I'll remind you. Um, back in chapter 1, life is full of trials. The question is, what are we going to do in reaction to this? And I think typically there are two ways you can respond. One is anger, bitterness, which kind of poisons your soul. Or maybe just we just fatalistically just resign to it, which I think maybe dulls the soul. And so James wants to suggest something else, that we actually pray. Now, our text today only involves four verses. But there, there really is no way that we can thoroughly unearth all the things that we ought to talk about here, and, and uh, I'm going to keep you about 35 minutes or so, and uh, as I've told you in the email, if you read that, uh, I hope to travel a little bit of a distance with this this morning. So let's pick up in our text, starting in chapter 5, verse 13. If any of you is in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him uh, with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the person, uh, sick person well. And the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, if you take stand back and take in the larger picture here, I think James is telling us this from the top of your outlines. We should lay every moment of our lives before the Lord. Every moment. Is anyone in trouble? Anyone happy? Doesn't that just about holistically include all of us? We all know uh, as Christians that at any moment within a church family, say, that some people are experiencing great struggles and some people are experiencing great joys. Um, just, you know, follow a preacher, an elder, or if you're one of those, go to the hospital and just spend some time over there. And uh, in one room, you can be holding a baby of a couple who's just given birth to their first child, and there's great joy, and you can go down the elevator to another floor and be holding the hands of a person who's struggling with cancer. One minute you can be on the phone with someone telling you that their world is falling apart, and then a few moments later you check in an email and someone's talking about how God has answered a prayer for them. So we all know that life is full of things to pray about, and there are things to praise about. And what James insists is this, that we have a God for all seasons. And that in no moment in our life does God not invite him or ourselves to him. The irony is, though, is we tend to use this as a last resort when God says, I want you to relate with me and use this as a first response. Paul encourages us to the Philippians. We know the text. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. So there you go. And by the way, it might mean something for you to know this, that the person who's telling you this, James, is really authentic. Uh, Eusebius, he's uh, uh, one of the earliest church historians, uh, I think called the father of church history, um, tells us that James had a nickname back in the early church, and it was Camel Knees. And the reason he was called Camel Knees is that he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that his knees actually became very calloused and therefore transformed the physical, physical appearance of them. Now, I imagine a lot of us have been given nicknames as we've been growing up. But how many of us were given nicknames because of our spiritual lifestyle? Well, my point being that when James says to pray about everything, uh, he's walking the talk. Which isn't that the whole point of James? Remember the beginning. And we started this whole thing. Because James understands a very critical truth, and that is that prayer accesses the grace of of God, And that should sound very familiar to us. Hebrews chapter 4, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I mean, is there a single moment in your life where you couldn't use some more grace? Now, let's talk about the different kinds of healings that James encourages us uh, to pray for. First of all, you see in your outlines, we should pray when we need emotional healing. And yes, it is in this text. James uses a word when he says, anyone troubled. It's a word that points not to a specific uh, misfortune, but rather, as one person puts it, to an inner uh, uh, experience of having to endure mis- uh, misfortune. 
It's the same word used back in uh, just before this text, verse 10, when it talks about the, the prophets who suffered. The same word for troubled. The prophets were suffering. And if you're acquainted with the prophets, you know that really more than not, what they dealt with was not the physical punishment. As it was just emotional distresses and struggles in life that, that uh, uh, came their way. Now, I want you to think about this. Isn't that what your and my experience really more reflects? Isn't it the stresses of your soul that really um, make you vulnerable and disorient you in this world? Um, James tells us here that in every life there's going to come situations that cause serious internal distress. Now, we need to kind of pause here, and and, let me just mention this. In fact, I heard this phrase used when Chad prayed. Um, God made us body and soul. And you hear that phrase connected, that we're not fragmented. That what affects the outer person, your physical being, affects your soul. What affects your soul affects your outer being. All right? And I think that takes place in a lot of ways that we don't really quite fully understand because there's some mystery to it to me. Um, but on your outline, what I'm trying to say is this. We're holistic. That is, our bodies and souls are unified, and therefore God plans to redeem all that makes us up. It goes beyond simply, we say, spiritual dynamics. The psalmist said this, He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. What wounds is he talking about? How many of us here today have uh, broken hearts? Who are bleeding in your heart. Another psalmist says this, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all of, his, all of his benefits. Who forgives all our sins and notice and heals all your, what's the immediate antecedent? Soul. Diseases. Understand the psalmist is talking about the diseases of the soul. So think with me for just a second. Is it, any, is it any less a gracious work of God when he removes bitterness from your heart as it would be to remove cancer from your body? It's all a work of God, isn't it? Second, on your outlines, we should pray when we need physical healing. James says, is anyone sick? And I'll be honest with you, as you pick up there in verse 14, it, it raises a gluttony of questions. Uh, more than uh, I have time to deal with here. And even if I had all the time I wanted, uh, in all honesty, I, 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 uh, I would find, I would break down somewhere trying to figure this out. Um, so what you're going to have to allow me to do is just, just kind of break this verse down just a little bit. And let me, again, paint in some very broad strokes and try to untangle a little bit of this. Uh, But I want to do more than untangle it. I want you to be able to engage it. So let's see what we can do here. First of all, why the elders? That's a simple question. Uh, Well, one reason, I guess, because it synchronizes with verse 16, which says, you know, the prayers of a righteous man does a lot of good. And elders should be certainly some of the most uh, uh, matured, uh, 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 spiritual, righteous men within a church family. That is defined. They're in tune with God. They're in touch with his heart. They're sensitive to God's leading. And so that's one reason we should call them. 
But the second is because elders, I think, represent the entire community of faith. You see, the implication here is that this guy that you're having to go pray for is too sick to come to the church, and so the church has to go to the sick person. As we say, he's flat on his back. That's why they have to pray over him. So I guess, you know, when I look at this, by the way, the church makes house calls too, right? Now, just as a precaution, let me say this. Uh, it's not that, and this is where I think we go, we're not thinking. It's not that some people have more access to God than other people. You know, as Martin Luther and others tried to recover, uh, we all are the priesthood of believers. Every single person in this room who is connected with Jesus has free and bold access to God through the blood of Jesus. So there's no elitism here. What I think it is saying is this, is that if you're really sick, you call on the church to pray for you to get better, and you call on the elders to represent the church. Now, second of all, we encounter this obscure reference to oil. Again, I only uh, have a few moments to condense this because there's quite a few interpretations, interpretations that, that float around this word. So just real quick. Some, some scholars view the oil as symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Uh, legitimate, drawing from its use in the Old Testament, for example, when they would anoint the kings, like David, Saul, uh, and they would receive the Spirit. Uh, other scholars see it as an aid to faith. This is one that we tend to miss because we're not paying close attention to Jesus. Um, aid to faith in the same fashion as Jesus would create his own muddy compound and put it on, say, the eyes of a blind man before he healed him. The guy comes and hit that, the mud hit his eyes, I guess, creating a sense of expectation of being healed as a patient. I mean, Jesus didn't need the mud, did he? So... Um, it has a purpose. Others acknowledge the oil uh, was simply used in the first century in a medicinal way. It was a medicine. Uh, it referred to uh, uh, the Good Samaritan. What did he do? He bound up the wounds with wine and oil. So, so there you go. Um, so there are some possibilities here as we, as we, as we look at this. Um, after all is said and done, uh, all I can tell you is this, is that I'm not quite sure. Um, and if you can't live with ambivalence, that's, it's a hard moment, I know. Um, but um, perhaps all of them. But I, I do think it's worth inserting this here. You can have a big God and still use medicine. Now, I know it's one of those things that we hear, at least in our fellowship, our heritage, and we know this. Um, I can't help reflect upon situations like the media frenzy created by, uh, you have to be a little bit older, the Parker family back in 1988, uh, as a, who as a result of the word of faith movement, you know, name it, claim it uh, kind of uh, theology, uh, who refused medical attention for their son. In fact, there are still things in the news about this all the time. People refuse medical attention thinking that that's their connection with God. It would be unfaithful to depend upon these kind of things. And uh, I think they're very sincere. I just very misled, and, and they watched this group, uh, this Parker family, uh, watched as their son died of complications to diabetes, later was arrested for manslaughter. Um, by the way, they later renounced the theological uh, error in a book that they wrote called We Let Our Son Die. They even made a movie on this thing said uh, entitled Promised a Miracle. 
Um, you can Google it and you can find out. Um, the point here being this, that all healing is divine. But not all healing is miraculous. I see uh, in the Good Samaritan, if you will, a prototype of the doctors and the scientists who, who dedicate their lives to bringing us health. You know, we are increasing the average life span of uh, people in America and across the world. I think it's a good thing. Um, as James uh, told us back in James chapter 1, what? Every good gift comes from who? God. So, anything a good, competent doctor can do to help you is immediately, uh, ultimately, something that you can thank God for. All healing comes from God. Now, here's where we encounter, uh, to me, the greatest dilemma uh, in this text. Because James says very forthrightly here, does he not, the prayer offered in faith will make the person well And the Lord will raise him up. Now, you know, we hear these verses and we process and we move on and never really stop to think. How many people have you prayed for who have not gotten well? Let me, uh, I think it's here that I tend to reflect the advice of uh, Philip Yancey uh, in a book he wrote, which uh, I, I treasure, called Prayer. And he says this, I investigate the topic of prayer as a pilgrim, strolling about, staring at the monuments, asking questions, mulling things over, testing the waters. I admit to an imbalance, an overreaction to time spent among Christians who promised too much and pondered too little. And as a result, I try to err on the side of honesty and not pretense. I think if we deal with this thing, uh, I find myself, first of all, facing, if you will, generalizations, uh, dealing with two extremes. Uh, One group of people take a position I would call cessationist, as in the word ceasing. Uh, That is, their basic position is God intervened to heal supernaturally a long time ago, but God doesn't do that kind of thing anymore, and so it's not really, uh, uh, you know, spiritually mature to expect those kind of things today. On the other end are the people who take the position uh, that we'll call uh, confessionalist. Uh, This is the theological framework referred to earlier, identified with the name it and claim it. That is, it's guaranteed if you have enough faith, then you can just ask what you want, and God has to give it to you. Now, I think probably most of the people, at least in this room, most, maybe not all, uh, live somewhere between those two extremes. That is, um, we live between the two realities that kind of live in tension. It's what causes us problems here, or at least it does make Uh, That is, first of all, on the one hand, God still heals. On the other hand, but he doesn't heal everybody. Now, I believe it's always within God's power to heal. And I do not say this flippantly, but it's not always in God's purpose, obviously, to heal. Nonetheless, 
I find myself wishing that God would be a little more predictable and systematic, don't you? Uh, and would spend, you know, maybe suspend a few natural laws because don't you want this, God? And I want this, and people are suffering, and let's, can't we fix things right now? So God, you know, kind of suspend the laws when I need it. Isn't that what you need? But I also realize that I'm a bit inconsistent as I, and, you know, I don't, maybe it's just me, but I kind of think God's sometimes a bit capricious, uh, arbitrary. And at times it bothers me. But I think I'm inconsistent in this, in that I commonly accept the regularity of, of the laws of nature, if you will, and how things work. In most of the areas of my life, I just tend to become really inconsistent when it comes to the issues of health. Think about it. I don't have time to raise the question. I wish we could talk about it more. Do you really, do we really want to turn God into a magician, uh, a lucky charm that, that alters and rearranges life to fit what I need, even when it tends to synchronize with God's intent? Um, But I certainly see the fairness in asking the question here, isn't James guaranteeing healing in this text? My easy response to that is, ultimately, if you take an eternal point of view, the claims are, are something we can be certain about. But let's be honest, there's an immediacy here to James, isn't there? Um... You know, not just a pie in the sky, by and by, something on the ground while we're still around. Well, first of all, let me uh, take note that this is not the only place uh, in all the scriptures where, where similar uh, uh, notes of, you know, confirmant affirmation and the connection between prayer and receiving are made. Even Jesus himself, let's just take an example, said this, you can ask me for anything and I will do it. But, you know, um, do you find it um, within reason to say that he wasn't offering us a, a blank check? That, that uh, you know, it's within reason that there are boundaries of trust in this thing. And here's where I, I think this, 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 this leads. I believe that these kinds of promises are intended to get us to pray boldly, to pray to a God who can do anything. Karl Barth uh, once said, uh, when we clasp our hands together, uh, it's the beginning of, uh, of, uh, of an uprising against the disorder in this world. But they're not intended to foster an attitude where we just kind of pop into the presence of God and we, we uh, come in with this kind of brash sense of entitlement. And so, in short, on your outlines, we can ask God for anything. We just can't obligate God for anything. That is, we offer our prayers with humility that conveys a, a, a gratitude and a compassion without manipulating, without you know, what we call triumphalism. God always fixes my life and makes it like I want it to be. All the time while we're respecting this mystery 
that surrounds prayer. And so I think what James is uh, simply doing here is just to get us to lay every moment of our lives before the Lord. Is your heart broken? Ask for grace. Is your body broken? Ask for grace. And God will give you grace. Either over our trials, there are triumphal moments, or in your trials. You just have to define it differently. Let me see if I can bridge you there real quickly. Uh, Philip Yancey, uh, elsewhere in his book on prayer, says, offers this perspective. Let's listen. Notice the transition. Because I have heard from Christian leaders in Africa that uh, the health and wealth theology, name it, claim it, theology, uh, once widespread on this continent, uh, has undergone a sobering change since the onset of AIDS. There are no verifiable instances of AIDS being healed, and in some African countries, the infection rate approaches 40%. Process. Notice. The church has had to change its message from simply believe and you will be healed to a more difficult message of preaching against risky behavior, caring for the sick and dying, and looking after the millions of orphans resulting from the disease. You remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses one of the most beautiful descriptions to define God. He calls God the God of all comfort. But if you pay attention, Paul begins to make a transition. You'll notice how Paul moves the emphasis from God to us when he says this. God comforts us. Knows the the implication with prayer. Comforts us so that we may comfort those in any trouble with uh, the comfort we ourselves have received from God. At this moment, it's not an immediacy, not a triumphalism, but service. So I guess it depends on what we, what we expect out of this thing. Finally, we need to pray, obviously, when we need spiritual healing. Just to be clear, let me uh, say this, what I hope are clear words. All sickness is not the result of sin, and all sin does not lead to physical sickness. You see, nowhere are we taught to presume that suffering betrays an essential flaw in the person afflicted. You know, somewhat like a Job's uh, uh, friends. Uh, this is where I think we have a lot of pious answers to the world, but it's also very cruel. And sometimes with each other. Now let me t- attempt to make just a few connections here as we deal with this last thing. And I I certainly think it's safe to say this, that all sickness indirectly is related to the consequences of Adam's sin. Fallen race. Um, In some way, it did change our biological DNA, didn't it? Um, You'll note that when Jesus would heal people, one of the things he was declaring by his power to heal sins was was, I mean, to heal uh, physical sicknesses, was his authority over sin. You know, that constantly is, is kind of thrown out there with Jesus, also at surprising moments. 
You see, he could, uh, if, if Jesus could not reverse the effects of sin, then he could not heal people physically. And that's why on occasion when they would bring sick people to Jesus, while the people would come to Jesus anticipating healing, what would Jesus say? First he would say, your sins are forgiven, and the person saying, that's not why I came. And then he says, now get up and walk. But having said that, let me uh, make this connection. Uh, scriptures does teach that there is, at times, it seems rare occasions, a direct relationship between physical sickness and sin. There are occasions in both the Old Testament and New Testament where sickness was the direct result, if you will, of a divine visitation, if you will. Um, Whether it's Pharaoh's family, Genesis 12, who uh, had a plague sent upon his family um, as a divine visitation. Um, or you can go, and you're, if you're processing and are familiar with the New Testament, you're already in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul tells the Corinthian church that it was because of their, their, um, their failure to grasp, not the mechanics of the Lord's Supper, but the, the real substance of it. He says that many of you are sick, and some of you have even died. So I guess there is some connections at times. But let me make another connection, and this is the one that's more important, and that is regardless of whether your source of sickness is simply because we're part of a fallen human race or somehow we're just in dissonance with God's will, regardless, it's true on your outlines, physical sickness invites us to be more perceptive about our spiritual condition. Um, I think if I asked if that's been the experience of a lot of people in this room, I think a lot of people say, yeah, that has been my experience. That is, uh, uh, being physically sick has caused me to reevaluate my spiritual health, and, and those reflective moments have taught me that, that there, there, there was some healing that needed to take place in my walk with God. Um, how about you? As C.S. Lewis says, you know, God whispers to us in our joys, and he shouts to us and our pains. And so I imagine today that there are some people here today who have sick souls that reside in very healthy bodies. And there are people who have sick bodies that are housing very healthy souls. What do you think? Milton Jones. Um, the reason why you would know him, uh, 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 He's a friend of mine, although a very distant one. Uh, he preached up in Seattle, Washington for many, many years. Uh, he's currently the president of uh, Christian Relief Fund, which is the agency that uh, helps children around the world. Uh, our student centers adopted some of these children. Some of you as individuals have adopted children, most of them in Africa, who are suffering from AIDS. And we help support them and pay for things like education and things like that. Um, a number of years ago, Milton's father had cancer uh, in one of his lungs. And uh, so Milton went to, uh, his, uh, went to go with his father to Denver, Colorado, uh, to see a specialist. And um, at that time, the doctors were very optimistic that the other lung was clear. And uh, the idea was to remove the, the bad lung, and he could survive off the remaining lung. 
And, um, and that was the, what they had in mind. But uh, just be sure they did a biopsy on the clear lung. And when they developed the results, the tending physician, who was a Dr. John Armstrong, uh, came into Milton's father's room. Uh, he had tears in his eyes. And uh, as you might anticipate by that, he walked over to the bed. He, he took both of uh, Mr. Jones's hands in his and, and basically went on to explain that, uh, uh, that cancer had invaded his other lung, too. And there, there was just nothing that they could do. This was not a triumphal moment. Um, but what Milton remembered the most is what Dr. Armstrong said next. He said this, he goes, I am sorry that we cannot do surgery, but surgery isn't what you need most of all. And he went on to say, I know because I myself have been a patient for most of this year. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that what I needed most doctors couldn't provide because what I needed most was healing. That's the word he used. He used the word healing. And I guess it's kind of sad that he went on to say, I, I haven't found it yet. I'm not sure where to find it. He said, I, it, maybe it comes from family, maybe it comes from your faith, and he pointed at Milton. But what you need more than not having cancer, Mr. Jones, is healing. And my question to you is, do we understand that distinction this morning? Do we get this? The world certainly wants to know if we get this. Well, let me end with two statements of belief. The first one, again, going back to Phil Yancey, when he goes on to say this. I believe in God's desire for healing and justice, whether or not I will ever see that desire realized in the particular way that I want. Prayer invites us to rest in the fact that God is in control and the world's problems are ultimately God's and they're not ours. If I spend enough time with God, I will inevitably begin to look at the world with a point of view that more resembles God's own. What is faith, after all? But believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. And what other statement of belief? Mine, yours. I believe this. On your outlines, all our wounds need to come to the cross. All of our wounds need to come under the cover of the blood of Jesus. And that's where Peter takes us, if you remember, when he says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, me and you, we have been healed. If this church family can help you in some way uh, to heal, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, I'd like to believe this is a place of healing. And, um, and I want you to, to access it. Yes, you can pray. Just go to God and pray. Uh, but sometimes we need others. And uh, thus confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other so that we can be healed. Um, 
So is there anything we can do, whether it's just in private with one of the elders as they're back in the foyer and tapping them on the shoulder and just going off to pray, do this. Uh, or if you need to come forward and want to just talk to the whole family, I want you to feel free to do so now as we stand and as we sing.